Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. And no women, you will wow. Just declaim a few lines. Hello, Shannon Riley here, inviting you to join me every Sunday here on KSCF as I talk Shakespeare on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Every Sunday at 8 and 8, archived here at Kansas 785 Live, as well as on my own website, ShannonJRiley.com. Join me and let's talk a little bit about the bar on KSCF every Sunday, 8 to 8. listening to KSEF, a digital broadcast in Topeka, brought to you by 785 Magazine. Learn more at 785live.com. And now it's time for Shannon Shakespeare Sunday with your host, my daddy, Shannon Riley. <laughs> Hello again and welcome to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio. I'm Shannon Riley. Thank you, my darling baby, for the introduction. And we're here to continue talking about the works of William Shakespeare. If you've been listening to my podcast, you know what I always say. I am not a Shakespearean scholar. I just am a devotee of the works of William Shakespeare. And I've been devoting most of this last year, actually since the turn of the new year, to doing just one play at a time and talking about that play and its reference to Shakespeare's work. And I've been trying to do this in order of when the plays were written. And today's play is a difficult one because we don't really know when it was written, though there is a certain amount of knowledge we have when Shakespeare would have put pen to paper. But it's also possible that this is an early work that Shakespeare abandoned and had to be picked up by another playwright to finish. The play in question is Timon of Athens. It's also pronounced Timon of Athens. I'm going to stick with Timon because that seems to be the pronunciation I find the most. Now, Timon of Athens is one of those plays that is very rarely performed. Some scholars, and again, I'm not one, classify it as his very last tragedy, while others say that Coriolanus was his last tragedy. Timon seems to not quite fit into the tragedy category. It doesn't fit into the comedy category at all. It's not a history play. It's not even a romance. So what is it? It's a problem play. It doesn't fit with any of the other plays, and the only text of the play that exists was found in the 1623 first folio, meaning it was probably never published before, or if it was, we've lost all copies of it, and there's no evidence that it was ever performed in Shakespeare's time. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and side with certain scholars who say this was an unfinished work by William Shakespeare that was picked up by another playwright, probably a playwright by the name of Thomas Middleton, and finished. And Hemings and Condell picked it up and put it in the folio because Shakespeare had worked on the play, but I highly doubt Shakespeare ever finished the play, and I highly doubt that it was ever performed. This is not a stellar play. And I'll say that honestly, it's not a great play. It's hardly ever produced because it's awkward. The ending is awkward. It's hard to divide it, and it really doesn't fit in with the stereotypical idea of a Shakespearean play. It switches back and forth from 
verse to prose, which isn't odd. Shakespeare did that all the time. It's how it switches back and forth. It switches back and forth inside a speech itself, suggesting that Shakespeare wrote part of that speech and Middleton or some other playwright added the rest, or vice versa. And it's highly doubtful that Shakespeare wrote the ending of this play because it just has none of the hallmarks of a true Shakespearean play. And it is really stilted in some of its language. Now, I don't want to run it totally down. There is some great value to Timon of Athens, and I'm going to be talking about that. And I also think there is a very strong reason why Shakespeare started this play and why he may have abandoned it, or why he may have given it to Thomas Middleton to finish. When Shakespeare first started writing, he relied on other playwrights to help him. And as a matter of fact, if you go back to my very first podcast about various plays that Shakespeare wrote, you're going to see my podcast about Titus Andronicus and how that was probably based on a play that was handed to Shakespeare and he finished it. There could be a very simple reason here that Shakespeare is taking a play that he started working on and he passes off to another playwright as well. Maybe he just could not face it because Shakespeare is aging. And some of what Shakespeare is grappling with, with his aging process and the idea that he's been separated from his family and he's closing in on his retirement, that it could very well be some of the bitterness that Shakespeare was feeling at that time and leading up to the end of his days as a writer. Some scholars have even suggested that Shakespeare himself had a nervous breakdown. And this play is an evident of his moment of absolute weakness when he could not possibly go any further. Of course he does. He does write others. He got better. Or he just walked away from this play. We just don't know. There's some very interesting things in Timon of Athens that I want to talk about. But as always, before we get too far into it, we like to take a moment to take a look at some of the great quotes from Timon of Athens. And now, the Shakespeare quote of the week. There aren't that many. Again, he didn't write most of this play, but there are some really kind of clever ones that I wanted to share. For instance, there's the line by Epimantus, who's a, he's kind of a philosopher, a scholar. It's a clown role, but not clown in the sense of funny. There's very little that's funny in this play. But Epimantus is somebody who just has had it with the world. He thinks the whole world is corrupt. And he says in Act 1, Scene 2, Men shut their doors against a setting sun. Meaning that when you get beyond your usefulness to people, they'll walk away from you. Which is exactly what happens to Timon of Athens. But he also has this wonderful quote where he says, Like madness is the glory of this life. I I like that quote because this ability to be a little bit crazy, to be a little bit able to embrace the bizarreness of the world, makes life that much better. Eucolus, another friend of Timon's, has this great quote in Act 3, Scene 1. Every man has his fault, and honesty is his. That's a great fault to have. But the most quoted quote from the entire play is from the servant, Flavius, who in Act 4, Scene 2, uses the phrase, We have seen better days. It's that phrase, we have seen better days, that still is in our modern language today. So let's talk about the story of Timon of Athens and how it is a reference to Shakespeare's life at this particular time and how important it relates back to his early years as a writer and one of his favorite mentors, the great Christopher Marlowe and his play, Dr. Faustus. We're going to talk about that as we go through Timon of Athens. And first, let's take a look at the synopsis of the story. First of all, we meet Timon when the play opens and he is a very wealthy Athenian. 
He has lavish parties and he invites friends to these parties all the time and he gives them great expensive gifts and huge magnanimous feasts. Timon is a man of the people. He wants to glad hand with everybody, hug everybody. Friendship is the most important thing in Timon's life. He believes if you don't have friendship, you have nothing. Unfortunately, Timon seems to believe friendship is a thing you can buy and that's going to lead to his downfall. Now this wealthy philanthropist, this wonderful person, opens a play in Act 1 entertaining a poet and a painter, a jeweler, a merchant, several senators, all kinds of people who are at his place. The poet and the painter are two people who will come back to a little bit later. They are there for his generosity, for his patronage, and they grovel to him to continue to support their art. And this patronage this need to find a patron for your art is a struggle that Shakespeare comes to grips with in this play and talks about as an artist. He offers to pay everybody's debts. He gives a beautiful jewel that was given to him by the jeweler to one of his dear friends and says it will look better on you. <laughs> he offers to pay the debts of his friend Vitilidus, who has been in debtor's prison, and he pays for the marriage of one of his lowly servants to a woman of a higher station than she is because love is more important than money. He starts doing all of this magnanimous things at this banquet. This feast, by the way, is being given in honor of a great general by the name of Alcibiades. And Alcibiades is someone who we're going to come back to in this play a couple of times. And it's a very important character to keep in mind. Now, at this great big feast, Apomantus criticizes poor Timon, says he's wasting his money on these flatterers. They will only praise him for what he will give him, and he swears up and down that's not true, his friends are very loyal, every one of them loves him as much as he loves them. And he brings in some Amazon dancers, and they have a great big party. Timon ignores the warning from Flavius, his servant, as well as from Apomantus, that these friends are not true friends. In Act 2, Timon's creditors come due. It's time to pay taxes, and senators show up to collect the money. Unfortunately, Flavius is unable to pay the creditors full, and Timon is puzzled. He says, how is there not enough money to pay? Of course I have enough money. But no, Flavius says, you spent your money. You gave it away. You gave it to all of these people who don't care about you. Well, Timon, first of all, immediately chastised Flavius for not warning him ahead of time, even though, of course, he had. And he sends him, as well as other servants, to his friends and says, go and ask them for some money to, so I can pay my creditors and get a handle of my finances. So off they go to try and collect as much money as they can from all of Timon's friends, all the people who were at this banquet. And, of course, all of them say, gee, I just can't help right now. I'd love to, but I have my own expenses. Or... It's not a good time to loan money just because he's a friend. We need to make sure we have some kind of collateral, and Timon has given away most of his collateral. As, in the end, most of Timon's land has to be seized, taken, and sold at auction to pay his debts. Timon is ruined, and he's furious. So in response, in Act 3, Timon gathers all of his friends again for another feast. They all arrive and sit around a table, but as these senators sit down, has all their food brought in, set down in front of these so-called friends, and when they open up and reveal their food, it's nothing but warm water and rocks. Timon chastises his friends, says, you never really cared about me, and he throws this water and the rocks at them and flees from his home. He runs outside the city gates, swearing he will never return to the sinful city of Athens, and as far as he's concerned, this city can fall off the earth and disappear. 
he leaves behind his only two true friends, Flavius, his servant, and, of course, Appomantus, who is a clown who just did the right thing, much like Lear's clown, to try to tell him the truth and warn him from the beginning. Timon is ruined. He even has this great quote, Nothing emboldens sin so much as mercy. He decides he must destroy Athens. Flavius, in Act 4, loyal as ever, now takes leave of his fellow servants and tries to find Timon. Timon, meanwhile, is running through the wilderness. He's on the edge of madness. He's digging in the ground for edible roots to sustain him. His clothes are tattered. He's a mess. Finally, he finds a cave, and he takes up residence in this cave. And as he digs through the floor of the cave, he happens to find gold hidden away. A lot of gold. He could be a wealthy man again. But by this time, he's decided money is the root of all evil, and it's not worth having. Asabides, meantime, the same general he threw the big feast for, has been expelled from Athens as well. It seems one of his servants killed a man in a fit of passion, and he was about to be put to death by the senators. He begs for his servant's life to be spared and says that a crime of passion should not be as bad as premeditated murder. But when he speaks and so passionately in favor of his servant, he too ends up finding himself being banished. Alcibiades does leave Athens, but he takes with him a formidable force and decides he will return to Athens to destroy him with their soldiers. Now it's in this cave where we find Timon, where Alcibiades comes upon him. He offers him friendship, says he wants to help him, and he brings along with him not only his soldiers, but the only two female roles in the whole show, two prostitutes. The Timon they find here, though, is not the Timon they knew. He is angry. He is bitter. He hates life. He offers much of the gold to Alcibiades so he can go and pay for the destruction of Athens, and he offers gold to the two prostitutes so that they may continue to spread venereal disease to man. All man should be doomed to die. <laughs> this is getting dark, and it's not over yet. I'm going to take a short break here because I'm about at the halfway point, and we're going to come back and talk more about Timon of Athens and the real story behind the story on the other side. I'll see you in a few minutes. Bye-bye. Right here is where I would say now for a brief word from our sponsors, but I'm just sitting here waiting for you to put words in my mouth. So for advertising opportunities, go to 785live.com. Hello and welcome back to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here in KSEF Digital Radio 785 Live. I'm Shannon Riley and you are listening to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday where I get to come to you every Sunday to talk about the works of William Shakespeare. I've got a little bit of a sore throat today. I don't know what that's from, but uh, I hope I don't sound too hoarse for you. But as I talk about this play today, I'd love to hear from you. A quick reminder, if you'd like to reach out to me, please you can send me an email at shannon at shannonjriley.com. That's Shannon at ShannonJRiley.com. Riley is spelled R-E-I-L-L-Y. I'd love to hear from anyone listening today. Also, 
If you'd like to catch any of the past podcasts, you can find a lot of them all loaded up at shannonjreilly.com too, as well as you can find samples of my short plays and my murder mysteries and some short films. I'd love to see more people doing these plays, so if you're interested, send me a note there and let me know. I'd love to talk to you about it. Today we're talking about Timon of Athens. I gotta say, this is not a great play, as I had mentioned in the first act. And I'm going to finish up its scenario right here, and then we're going to talk about what it is behind Timon of Athens and why it's an important play nonetheless. But let's finish up that synopsis now. I told you Timon, who used to be a very wealthy aristocrat and philanthropist in Athens, has now found himself absolute destitute. All of his friends who he had asked to help him do not help him, do not come back to help him at all, and he finds himself living in a cave eating roots where he discovers a treasure trove of gold. And when his old friend Alcibiades comes by with his army, he offers that gold to Alcibiades to continue his march and campaign to destroy Athens. He even offers some gold to two prostitutes to continue to spread venereal disease through all men that they meet. He is obviously a very angry man. Timon gets one more visitor that we need to talk about, and that's the clown Appomattus. And Appomattus comes to him and says, You know, you brought this on yourself. You did this. This did not have to be how it turned out. And you should not rail against humanity for your own mistakes. But no, Timon hangs onto the idea that no, he did not bring this about. That he was good and loyal to people. And loyal people turned on him. He is the one who was betrayed. And he is the one who must seek justice. This is, again, that hallmark of Shakespeare. Of his ability to play two sides of any argument. And it's up to that director, that company that produces that show, to decide which side of the argument they want to stand on. And it's very, very hard with Timon of Athens to really say one way or another is what Shakespeare intended. All right, so up to Act 5, which is very, very quick. Flavius, his old servant, finally comes upon Timon. Again, most, if not all, of that gold is nearly gone. Flavius wants some of that gold. He has served Timon for years, but he is willing to forego any payment just to continue to serve Timon until Timon's days are ended. Timon realizes he only ever had one true friend, his chief servant, Flavius, and he regrets that he had not recognized that sooner. He gives him the last of the gold. He also gives some gold to the poet and the painter who arrive upon Timon's cave and... Timon continues to give them some gold to patronize their art. News has arrived that Alcibiades is coming for Athens. So two senators come upon Timon and ask him to please talk to his old friend and talk him out of destroying Athens. Timon sends him away. He curses them and says what's coming they deserve and it should come to all men of Athens. Alcibiades does arrive at the gates of Athens, but before he can attack, a soldier comes to him and says, I've come across a gravestone. Your friend, Timon of Athens, is dead. Alcibiades fears that this revenge has gone on far enough and it's cost him too many lives. He marches into Athens and throws down the glove and says he will attack only those people who abandoned his friend Timon, but that Athens itself will be saved. It's a very disappointing ending. It just doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't really express anything. And it's very possible that this ending itself, Shakespeare never ever saw. I really am of the belief that this play 
never was produced, or if it was, it was not produced with this script. There's things missing. It doesn't divide well into acts. That's been pointed out that during this time in Shakespeare's life, dividing plays into acts really didn't matter. You didn't need it for when you were performing on stage at the Globe or any outdoor theater because you just went all the way through without any intermission or any break. Intermissions started happening when Shakespeare's company moved into the Blackfriars, and that happened around 1608. This was an indoor theater that they used in the winter and they used primarily at night, and they had to have act breaks, particularly intermissions, so they could change out the candles on the footlights so they had enough light to continue to perform. This was the birth of intermissions. It was for the candlelights. Anyway, this is a play that has a bunch of Shakespearean hallmarks about his life and possibly where he's at now. And I mentioned Christopher Marlowe's play, Faustus. Faustus, which has been a celebrated play ever since it was written, it was a celebrated play when Shakespeare came to London. This is a play about a very wealthy man who spends all of his money and loses nearly everything and makes a pact with the devil in order to return to his powerful state. This was a play that really affected London and it really affected Shakespeare. Christopher Marlowe died way too young. Had he lived, we might be celebrating Marlowe festivals rather than Shakespeare festivals. But Shakespeare never forgot his friend. And we believe that part of this story of Timon of Athens was very much impressed upon him by Faust. The other thing is how alone in the world we find Timon. Even at the beginning of the play, he has no wife, he has no children, he has no immediate family. He is isolated and alone, and stays isolated and alone throughout the entire play. Shakespeare also returns here to a male-dominated story. He had been moving away from this. He had been doing plays that involved more women, particularly fathers and daughters, which is exactly who Shakespeare was at this time. He was a man... (coughs) He was a man separated from his family and questioning whether or not being separated from his family was worth it. What did he miss? He's getting towards the end of his possible life as a playwright and he is looking to be replaced. Now... Was this play an audition for Middleton? Did he give it to him and say, finish this up, see what you can do with it? Maybe you'll take over as the head writer for the Kingsmen? Possibly, but I don't think so. I really think that Shakespeare abandoned this story a long time ago and gave it to Middleton to see if he could do anything with it. And after Shakespeare died, a very poor copy of the play remained. Possibly not the one they ever performed, if they ever performed it. Probably just an unfinished manuscript that his friends could not resist putting in the folio. As a result, you have a play here that answers no questions. But it is a play that goes back to some of Shakespeare's roots, this male-dominated world, this male-centric world. The only women in the play are two prostitutes, which is disappointing at the very least, and they have very little worthwhile to say. Shakespeare is obviously going back to his roots here and exploring a play that he might have dabbled with years before. We can date this play around 1604, 1605 to 1608 due to some of the references that are within the play. It was probably before 1608, that's when they gained the Blackfriars, so the play would have been more structured for performance at the Blackfriars. It was later than 1605 because there seems to be a reference 
gunpowder plot of 1606 within the Also, there is an anonymous play that comes out probably around 1607 or 1609, somewhere in that area, called Timon the Misanthrope. Another playwright took a run at this story, and it's even worse than this one. Obviously, it was not Shakespeare. It's an anonymous written piece. But from the very beginning, the character of Timon is bitter and angry. He's more of a Scrooge. He's more of a spendthrift. Here, at the opening of this play, Timon is throwing money like crazy. And that's why I think this is about Shakespeare later in life. Shakespeare was wealthy when he retired. And he was doing something with his money. He was buying land. But his fellow actors, who were also getting money, were not so smart. Some Shakespeare even had to pay for their funerals when they died. Because they had no money left. They spent money on women and wine. They lived lavishly. And they had nothing left when they got sick or when they got old. Shakespeare himself recognized that time was fleeting. And he knew that he had to take care of not only his family, but himself. And he did. There's that question of artistship and patronage that exists in the play. Remember, there's a, a artist and a poet who follows Timon all the way to the cave. Now, these two men needed his patronage. I remember many, many years ago reading that there are only four ways an artist can survive being an artist. The first way is that artist must find a patron because just making your art will not sustain you in life. You need a patron who believes in you and will pay for you to continue to do your art, writing, painting, dance, whatever. That's the first way. The second way you make money as an artist is if you already had it, you inherited it. There are people who were artists who lived their whole life doing just their art because they could. They could afford to have something behind them. Their inheritance led them to keep going. The third way you could survive as an artist was to sell your art, to give it away. In order to sell it, you had to do what would sell, meaning make it popular. And for some artists, that just wasn't what they wanted to do. It didn't express who they were. To somehow dumb down their craft to a sellable thing was hard for some artists to do. And the final and most common way all of us make art today is you had to have another job that sustained you and you did your art on the side. So you created less. Now, this sounds pessimistic, but it is rather truthful if you think about art and how it can sustain anybody. Shakespeare was dealing with this patronage question from the very beginning. When he came to London and started working, he might have arrived with a theater company or he might have arrived afterwards and joined a theater company. I think he came with a company and joined another company once he got there. And I've talked about that in previous podcasts, uh, so check that out. But regardless of the fact, these companies did not exist without patronage. And it had to be royal patronage. It had to be the Lord Strange's men. It had to be the Lord Pembroke's men. It had to be somehow connected to the crown. That's the only people who allowed to give license for performers to perform. It's why today, when I want to do a play or a musical, I have to pay a royalty. That's where the term comes from. So these royal benefactors were people that Shakespeare had to deal with all his life. He had to be careful not to offend them. There's evidence that most of the sonnets he wrote were written strictly out of patronage. 
directly to one Lord so that he could continue to write. During times of plague, Shakespeare never left London. There's evidence he stayed behind while his company would go out and perform in the countryside. One, because he hated traveling in the countryside, perhaps. You never made much money. It was dangerous, and you were at the risk of being robbed constantly. And secondly, he always found a patron, someone he could go to their particular manor, to their home, and write. He would write for them. And some of his plays were even written as thank yous to those patrons. Love's Labor's Loss is one of those patrons. So Shakespeare is dealing with the end of his career here. He's writing a play, if he did start it, about a male-centric world, how he wrote most of his plays in his early beginnings. But he's also writing about what is worth it. What did we gain? After we do everything that we do, and anything we create, it's all for naught. Could it be that Shakespeare really did have this breakdown? Or could it be he just really is that pessimistic about art, about life, and about how he spent his life? Shakespeare only has a few plays left in him that we know of. They're the only ones who survived, but we're coming up toward the end of his writing life, and he returned back to Stratford-on-Avon, where he died in 1616. His life is coming to an end, and as anyone who is getting up there in life, you start to think about what was worth it, and sometimes those thoughts aren't very good. Shakespeare's most depressing play ever. <laughs> That's how I remember Diamond of Athens. I've read it many times, and I find it a very quick, easy read. It's not complicated. It's just not wholly fulfilling either. Thank you for listening to Shannon Shakespeare Shunday once again. We'll join you next week as we continue on exploring the final plays of Shakespeare as we move back into the romances. Thank you for tuning in. And remember, until we see each other again next time, keep it barred to the bone. <laughs>